Uh, hello and welcome to Hear Me Out. I'm David Ball and I'm your host today to discuss racism and policing here on the Cape. With me today are uh, Marie Younger Blackburn, a local entrepreneur and woman of color, and Peter Wack, Chief of Police here in Sandwich. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Marie, let me begin with you. You live in Mashpee and are very involved in the community. In addition to your driven program to advance women in business, you're part of the fabric of the Cape. I saw you on, on social media a couple months ago. You saw a need and you pounced on it. Uh, Jenny Wheeler, the local chef feeding the hungry, was having car trouble and you started a fundraiser. You had 850 people invited to donate and 95 did. You raised $5,000 and you put her back to work serving others. You know, my interest today, though, is talking about race. So in your program, Conversations That Matter, you've been collecting stories about um, Collecting stories would include ones about bias, misinformation, social injustice. Let me ask you this. Is systemic racism real? And if so, how is it manifest here on the Cape? Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. I'm just honored to be here today. And thank you for knowing those things about me. That kind of brought me to tears a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, but um, yes, systemic racism does exist, um, and it's just uh, baffling to me that we have the conversation that it may not exist. Um, it, it's very, very real. It's um, in the fabric of our society. It's in everything that we do. Um, if we live in a house, if we go to the doctor, if we um, go to school, um, our our judicial system, our um, uh, you know, policing, it's, it's, it's there. It's embedded in our society. It has roots, it has legs, and it has wings, and um, we have to continue to talk about uh, where, where it exists so that we can um, begin to eradicate those things. Okay, I appreciate that. Peter, uh, you rose to the ranks of law enforcement in Connecticut uh, for 20 years, including uh, a stint running internal affairs. Uh, before taking command in Sandwich. Um, you've been the chief of police here now for 10 years, uh, and you've taken the department from one that had only three written policies to one with over 70. Um, when you were recently interviewed by the local NPR affiliate, you said that, being, uh, that not being racist wasn't, uh, wasn't enough, that we needed to be anti-racist. Can you explain what you mean? Sure. Uh, shortly after George Floyd's death, a, a pastor down in the Atlanta area, uh, Andy Stanley, spoke about racism. And he spoke about it and said, uh, each one of us is somebody's experience. Um, and his question was, how do people who don't look like you or me, or any of us, how do they experience us? And how should they experience us? And the message went on to say that we should be anti-racist the same way we are anti-bullying, anti-child abuse. And when you think about anti-child abuse, if you were driving down the road this morning and you saw an adult physically assaulting a child, you would stop your car, you would take action, you would call 911, you would intervene, you would do something right then and there to end it. If we treat racism the same way we do bullying and child abuse, that's the right thing to do. And simply saying that you associate with people who don't look like you, or simply saying that you know the facts isn't enough. What, what he encourages is that we develop friendships. 
develop the conversations like we are today and start learning from each other how we can start changing in the beginning, in the grassroots. And you know, as we walk out of any situation, we should think, what experience have we given to somebody who isn't like us today? And so we, we need to right become thing? allies. We do. We need to work together. OK. All right. Marie, perhaps it's unfair for me to ask you to speak for all women of color, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you feel whites and blacks are policed differently on the Cape? Um, let me see. I can only speak to my experience, right? And um, I, because I don't know this experience of a white woman, and maybe they have spoken to me, and I, I, I could probably say that um, they're not pulled over at the rate that I am. Um, I have experienced um, some things in terms of uh, policing that I feel I ask myself why, right? Why am I being pulled over? Um, I've been pulled over in stop and shop parking lot. Um, you come out of the supermarket and you get into your car. Um, I've been asked more than once, whose children are these in your car? Um, I've been pulled over when being out with a white woman. Um, and she got into her car, I got into mine, I'm followed and stopped. Um, I'm never given any reason, right? So it's not like you were speeding, your blinker wasn't on. Um, once I was given, well, we have a drug problem in town, right? And I think that was my last stop because I, I had it at that point. Um, I, I, you know, when you have to give your credentials or who you are or who you know or Google me, I'm one of the good guys, I'm in town doing the work, right? Then that was the point, I had enough. And would you say that, um, that this happened more to you in the past, more now, the same? Yeah, so um, in the past, but recent past, and currently, like I said, when I had enough, I, I, I haven't been stopped um, recently. So, yeah. Okay. okay. Peter, I, I wanted to ask you about the Boston Globe. Um, the Boston Globe this week published a story that suggests that systemic racism in the department, the, the title of the article uh, is called, Within Boston Police, More Often White Officers Win the Awards and Black Officers Get Punished. Does that surprise you, the Globe came up with that? That would be a difficult one for me to talk about because I'm not part of Boston. Okay. really don't interact with them very much. I, we talked about earlier, I came from an agency with uh, about 1,200 law enforcement officers, uh, and our, cl our classes, our groups, uh, we, were, we were very integrated. Um, affirmative actions was a, a significant policy in our agency, and to be honest with you, didn't even really notice it because it was, we all just worked together, we all uh, got along, there was no no real racist issues. Um, but to speak to the Boston issue, I really I can't answer that question. For mm. does, does your force, you have what, 35 officers, something like Correct. that? Correct, we have 35. Okay. Um, do they, um, uh, racially, do they reflect 
the community? Well, I guess your community is what, 99% white? Correct. Um, do, you, do, you, um, do you make an effort to, I, I guess my question is, in, in places where there's a great deal of racial diversity, uh, you would imagine that there would be an interest in having the policing force um, mirror the, 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 uh, the citizens that they protect and serve. Um, do you find that you're actively uh, looking to promote racial diversity, or that's not really an issue? So uh, on, Cape Cod, on Cape Cod, there are four towns that are uh, in the civil service hiring process. And basically what that means is the state of Massachusetts handles the application process, the testing, and when we have an opening here in Sandwich, um, we have to make a request to the state of Massachusetts and they tell us who our number one, two, and three candidate is for each position. Um, we have to take the number one candidate unless there's some reason, criminal background, something like that, to bypass them. So we don't have the flexibility that, say, um, other towns, Yarmouth or whatnot, that are not civil service where they have their own hiring practice. Um, as far as diversity, uh, we, we do see male and female show up. We hire specifically from sandwich residents. Mm -hmm. um, so if somebody wants to be a sandwich police officer, we look first within the town, and pretty much that is our hiring pool right there. Okay, all right. Uh, were you surprised when Marie was talking about, about getting stopped? I, I guess when I was listening to what you said, um, I thought, well, there are two things that could be happening here. One is that this is just in your head, okay, that, that um, you're not being stopped any more than, than white women. Um, and the other possibility is someone's looking at you and they're stereotyping you and they're saying, oh, this is somebody that needs to be stopped. What, what, what's your reaction to what she said? You know, I, I, um, I felt for Marie and I, I strongly believe every police agency is supposed to have a complaint intake process. The U.S. Department of Justice outlines that in consent decrees they have with agencies that have failed to comply with their standards. Mm -hmm. For instance, in Sandwich, we have a very thorough complaint intake process. And in a situation like Marie was explaining, I feel strongly a complaint should have been registered if she felt that something was being done wrong. Now, an agency that has a good complaint intake process will have people that are trained in internal affairs that have good reputations. And a good investigation will be completed, taking her information, the officers, and whatever other criteria were involved. But I think in that case, somebody should look into that beyond uh, just letting it go. Because if there is something going on, we need to address it. If there is a justification, it should have been given to her at the time of the stop or to anybody in that situation. So I always, I always feel strongly that if you feel that something is done unjustly to you, there should be a vehicle, a method to make a complaint and have it investigated. And any chief of police should entertain those complaints from anybody, even second, uh, third person or anonymous complaints should be investigated. And in a case like that, I, I felt strongly mm. when she told that story. Interesting, okay. Um, I, guess, I guess what I'm wondering is, you know, how do we make progress in Sandwich? You know, uh, Superintendent uh, Pamela Gould said that racism has no place in our schools. Um, but if we, if we take up Peter's challenge to do more to, to, race, uh, to, to root out intentional racism, 
Uh, does that mean that the school curriculum, the culture, the policies that reflect, are they reflecting issues of race? Um, where do you think we can make progress in, in this community? Because it, it sounds to me, and, and correct me if, if, if you get a different impression, that, um, that overt racism is not a big issue in Sandwich in terms of, of policing, that, that, that the, the relationship of policing to, uh, to Sandwich is, um, is, is certainly a lot better than, than in many communities. Um, but I think we're also seeing that, that there is systemic racism and it exists in Sandwich as well. And where are our opportunities to, to, um, to make things better? What do you think? When, when I first came to town, no place for hate was uh, established here in Sandwich. Mm -hmm. uh, at the time, they, they didn't have a place to meet. We, we had them meet in our police station. We actually went to their meetings. Um, and there was a lot of good happening. There was curriculum that was being introduced to the schools. There was educational material that was going to the community. Um, you know, since that time, that, that group uh, doesn't, um, I don't even know if they exist or they don't meet as much. but. They were doing a lot of good. Uh, there was a lot of conversation at the table, and it was being brought out to the community. And um, you know, maybe uh, the group felt that they had met their their uh, their goals. But information sharing, discussions, and education are really important with mm. topics like this one. Marie, what do you think? So I don't live in Sandwich, but I worked You're the in next town over, right? The next town over. I worked in Sandwich for many years, and um, I did live in Sandwich for one summer. So I worked um, at, a, at a camp here. Many friends in Sandwich, and actually it was my desired town to live in when I was looking for my first home. And um, I just wasn't able to get past the um, telephone call for, you know, meetings or showings for, um, for rental at first, um, and then home ownership. So the town is, is very white, um, a very nice town. I, I've never had a problem in Sandwich uh, with a police officer, um, you know, uh, at, at all, and I, I appreciate the town. Um, however, I, I do feel there's a reason why it's 99% white, right? Um, what those reasons are, I don't know. Um, I, I, I have a hunch, um, it, maybe it's socioeconomic, that um, it's a, a high tax um, base and um, it's not the most affordable town. Um, it's an older, established town um, and what I think um, that can continue to happen is, like we're doing right now, have conversations, have people who um, may be in this town who are of color um, continue to speak up and speak out and speak with um, their school system, um, their police departments, et cetera. Um, I do know of several people who have had problems within the school system um, in feeling um, the racism there and in not wanting to go back. I've had these real conversations with people and not one, you know, several um, different ages um, raising their children or being in the school system. But I really think um, the biggest issue here is socioeconomic. 
you know, and where people um, fit in this community. And I, I do think there are people, more people of color coming into the community, yeah. So, um, and hopefully it will continue, you know, to, to, to become more diverse. Well, I wanted to ask you about that, because you, you were on the Housing Authority, right? Yes, yeah. in, in Mashpee. Oh, mm -hmm. Yeah, in Mashpee. Um, and I wonder, when, when a place is 99% white, is, is, that, is that a function of there not being enough affordable housing? I mean, it, is it that, or is it that, um, I, I guess, I, I don't want to see a problem that doesn't exist, mm -hmm. uh, but by the same token, you don't want to ignore something. Mm -hmm. and, and so if, if you see a place that is 99% something, mm -hmm. is it because there is an active effort to exclude people, or is it because, um, black people don't have personal wealth and sandwich is an expensive place to live or i mean what what's your your feeling i think it's a combination of that you know if we're really going to be real and honest um so um it takes a certain amount of wealth right to be able to live here um and also being a person of color if you're moving into a town that is 99 percent white and you have children, you want your children to have um, a diverse experience, and maybe that's not the town for you. Um, I could just give you one example. So um, I raised my children at a local camp here um, and, and worked at that camp and had lots of friends here in Sandwich and just had a great time. But one of my really close friends, um, she was raising a family and there was talk of affordable housing coming to town now we're at her house and she was telling me this story about um, they were there was talk of building affordable housing near her home her reaction was so shocking to me I mean tears she started crying she said she would move away to New Hampshire um, this is all at the speculation of affordable housing coming in her neighborhood. Um, at the time, we're young. She wasn't a, a woman of particularly, you know, large means. They were a growing family, husband well-employed. Um, they could afford to live here, but they originally lived in like a one-bedroom a one schoolhouse that they built on. So I, I was just shocked and awed and hurt by her reaction. I don't know that I responded to her. I think I empathized with her at the time. I don't think I responded in any other way. I don't even know if I had the words to. But that was just so shocking. I'm wondering, I was wondering who does she think is going to move, you know, next to her that would be so detrimental to her livelihood and well-being that it would cause the reaction to say that I will leave and move. Yeah, and, and I mean, are those people that are, that are moving next door, is it because they don't look like her or is it because they're poor or what, what, is, the, what is the thing that, that would bother her? So I think a combination of, you know, um, when people don't have the means, maybe they don't have the means to keep their property up, maybe the neighborhood would change in, in color. I think we all, um, if we're honest, hold, I know I had to check my own self.
those biases. You know, we have renters that moved in next to us now. You know, I was a renter. And, and the biases that we hold about people, you know, what they do, what they'll do, what their property will look like, will they maintain, you know? Some of them are true. Some of them are um, just the biases we hold and we need to really check ourselves and remember where we came from, you know, and how much hard work it takes to get where we want to be. And then also realize that people have the right to live where they want to and how they want to, you know? Hmm. Yeah, and some of those are fears that may not be warranted fears. Okay. Sometimes, yeah. Okay. Um, you know, I was interested in both of your, your reactions. Um, there were some things that, that I've seen lately about uh, about how we might change policing, not, not so much here, but, but nationally, about qualified immunity and about defund the police. Um, can you speak to those? Can you explain to me what those are and, and what your take on them is? I think just looking back um, at the discussions that happened initially, um, there, were, there were a lot of reactions after the unfortunate passing of George Floyd. Obviously, every one of us in this room are, are familiar with that, that situation. And a lot of different um, thoughts and ideas were coming out. Uh, it's interesting when you talk about qualified immunity. Um, the uh, teaching industry, um, your Department of Transportation employees, it, it applies to all of them, too. And it's, it's actually interesting. They're, they're more concerned in place because uh, Police don't use qualified immunity as much as other government employees. What does it mean? What are the words? It's, uh, it's basically a, an immunity which is given to government officials um, when they take certain actions. And uh, it was in 1982 the US, U.S. Supreme Court ruled on uh, providing qualified immunity. So, um, you know, I've, I've had discussions with our elected leaders about this and the defunding. And you know, one of the important things that I, I, I talked to our elected leaders about is we need to slow down and look at what is happening in our commonwealth in Massachusetts. Um, for instance, Massachusetts, if you try to compare Massachusetts to Michigan or some other place, um, you're going to see night and day differences with our training, with our certification process for police officers, um, with how we investigate uh, misconduct and how we discipline misconduct. And with the challenges you face, I mean, you're... Right. Yeah. And so one of the things I had recommended is you almost need to come up with a, a benchmark system of what are the expectations of police departments. Do you want them accredited? Do you want officers certified? How do you want the system set up? And then look at each police department, police agency, because uh, they're state and federal and county, um, within Massachusetts and see, do, do we meet the benchmark, do we exceed it, or do we fall below? And then use that as the new template for how police departments should police themselves. Because I think you're gonna find, especially here in Cape Cod, um, most of us are either trying to get accredited or are accredited. Uh, our training is above what the state requires us to do. We're paying for a lot of extra training ourselves. And we investigate our own very seriously. So. We need, we need to look at that type of a system. I, I think that the, the words defund the police are probably um, a poor choice of words. I, I, I think most people would probably say that they, 
they believe that, that we need to have something that approximates police in our community. Um, but my understanding of, of defund the police, what, what the people that advocate it is, is that they feel that, uh, that resources that currently go to law enforcement uh, would be better served going to mental health counselors or going to um, addiction specialists or social workers or something like that. Do you feel that the, uh, the funding to the police in Sandwich uh, is appropriate uh, as it relates to the, um, the kinds of uh, calls that you get? Yes, uh, definitely. Um, when, when you're talking about defunding, a lot of police agencies are running tight on their budgets. So for us to be able to put out three cars a shift, um, especially on our evening shift when really we could use five or six cars, um, to, to lose any of that funding would just mean police services to the community would, would end um, or be limited drastically. So what, what we've done is we have Officer Brian Bonderick. He's a community service officer. It's a new position. It's been in place for about, I don't know, five, six years. And he has developed um, a couple different things. We, we do something called the morning after, where if we have an overdose of uh, somebody with drugs, we meet with a social worker, uh, Gosnold Hospital, and we go visit the house. And we, we, we provide service recommendations, not only to the victim, but to the family and the household members. We also have a CIT program, um, basically where we uh, partner with a crisis intervention team. We partner with uh, NAMI, Bay Cove, Gosnold, the housing authorities um, in the area, and Council on Aging. And we try to provide solutions to people with mental health. And we deal with it on a case-by-case -case situation. Now, our numbers are a lot lower than maybe a metropolitan area, but we're, on a local level, as a, a small police department, we're trying to find solutions to these new issues that are developing around our community. Mm. Marie, you know, you were talking about how um, when somebody moved into a community, they they wanted to uh, have people around them that they felt comfortable with and identified with. How, how can people who are white um, become allies with people of color? How can we become friends? How can we interact more? Um, I, like I said, I, I've been on Cape for over 30 years, predominantly white community. Um, uh, went to a predominantly white high school as a kid. I've never had a problem making friends, um, maybe keeping them, but um, making them um, is not the problem. I think, um, you know, people genuinely um, come together and we just should be able to genuinely share our experiences, who we are. Um, I'm married to an Irish-American um, male and um, who is a former law enforcement officer as well. Um, in the city of Boston, where we both grew up, we probably never would have met and come together just by virtue of um, the way Boston was segregated when we grew up. Um, that's a speculation. I'm not too sure, but we probably wouldn't have. And um, we, we came together on CAPE and we um, 
like all people, you come together um, with something that unites you, right? Something, a shared interest. Um, so we came together in a shared interest and found out we um, have more in common than we do um, our, our differences. You know, we're, we're very compatible. Um, even what was in, his experience as a police officer in being black? Excuse me? What was his experience in his career? His career, um, he was a police officer with um, Boston University and also um, a sheriff um, with the um, Suffolk County Department of Correction, a corrections officer. Um, he was an empathetic, and his father was um, 18 years on Boston police force, and he was 22 years as a um, court officer. So law enforcement was in their family. Um, also, um, empathy was in their family, you know, um, understanding of, of racial differences. My husband tells a story about his father's partner um, when they had a call the partner who was black would respond to the black community and he would respond to the white community. I think at the time they, they found that was, was best, it worked for them. I kind of sat back and didn't understand that, but um, the more I think about it in the time that it happened. It made sense. Yeah, so my husband, he tells stories of just showing um, lots of compassion and lots of empathy, kind of not ruling so much with an iron fist. He tells stories about how he would make it known, you know, that he was in control, but I respect you. I respect, um, and also to listen to their experiences. He tells stories of, you know, when he had to take them to court, like going through their neighborhood so they would have a moment to be able to be home and to connect and just different stories of um, really compassionate things that he would do, you know? Um, and I, I respected him for that. I respect him for that. I know this current climate has had us have really difficult conversations, you know, and, and where I see his lack of, of compassion to maybe something that I react to, something on the news that I react to in a different way, his reaction may be um, a little different. But he's just a calm, even, person anyway so that kind of well, that's neat so so if we have diversity we have the potential for having more compassion because people have have an understanding of other people's experiences that that we might never have I think so and we have to listen you know my page on Facebook is called um, let me tell you a story mm -hmm. and I I constantly ask the question are you listening so it's one thing to tell the story but are you listening to the story and we have had pretty much um, zero or very low percentage of people who challenge other people's stories. They're taking a stance of listening. They're not there to judge the story, to critique, you know, have an opinion or, or banter with people. They just simply listen. And I think that's um, something that we all can do within our neighborhoods and with our, our neighbors to, to um, acknowledge them. You know, I hear a lot of people say, I don't see color. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I want you to see my color. I want you to know my rich history. I want it's you to know. It's a lovely color, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> a lot of foundation. Um, I, I, I'd like 
people to know my rich history, my family's faith, my, um, their struggles and their triumphs. You know, I want them to know how, as a family, we um, pray together. We, education is a big, um, you know, the cornerstone of my family and that, you know, how our successes, you know, in our, in our struggles. I, I think it's important for people to understand. And sometimes you sit back and you go, wow. I know when, when Peter and I had a conversation, it was like, wow, you know, you, you've, you've had these experiences in Connecticut and now you're here and you've done the work to make Sandwich uh, a really solid community in, in terms of policing. Um, and I see it driving through Sandwich and I feel it, you know. Um, I, that's honest, you know. In a, in a cross Cape Cod, people are, are doing the work. And what I think, um, you know, we look at the big metropolitan cities, they have big, big city problems, right? Lots of people, lots of diversities, um, crime. But um, we are just a reflection of a big city. We are people who came out of big cities and settled into these quiet little hamlets, you know, and we have a pretense that we don't have the same problems, right? We have food insecurity, housing needs, we have homelessness, we have sexual abuse, um, we have racism, we have it all. But we are smaller, so we're able to, um, to collaborate with others and try to find solutions to those problems. So I think instead of saying, oh, it doesn't exist here. We need to ex acknowledge that it does exist here, but we're willing to do the work and then be a reflection for it on a national level on how um, cities can continue to do the work because they're doing the work too. The work is just so much bigger. Yeah, well, you see that with, with uh, Jenny Wheeler. I mean, we, we, have, we have people who are hungry here, but we also have people who are part of the solution. Sure. And, and that's wonderful. And, and being able to look at, at the Facebook um, and, and seeing the work that you do and the work that you've done, and everybody loves you. Everybody brings you food. I, uh, you have all these pictures. I don't know if you've seen it. Your, your Facebook page is, is full of thank you so much to these people who are appreciative of the work that we do and uh, know that we have to eat too. So, uh, so that's neat. I want to thank you both for coming. Um, I, you're both a delight, and, and you're part of the solution. Um, and it's, it's clear, I think, to all three of us that, um, that even if there isn't an intentional malice, the fact is that people are disadvantaged, that there is systemic racism, that it exists even in places that are almost entirely white, um, and, uh, and that we all have to work to uh, um, to make things better. Um, I just wanted to, to share with people uh, how I was asked to, to come and host this today, this conversation. Uh, I'm with a group called Braver Angels. Uh, it started uh, about a week after the 2016 election where uh, a guy named David Blankenhorn decided to bring together 10 people who voted for Donald Trump and 10 people who, who voted for Hillary Clinton and to see if they could have a civil conversation. And that was a tall order uh, because it was a lot of acrimony associated with the, with the election. Um, and he brought in a, a, a family therapist 
from the University of, of Minnesota uh, and created a red-blue workshop teaching people about stereotypes and about how to ask questions of authenticity. And um, it was a very successful weekend. And since then, Braver Angels has become an organization with well over 10,000 members. It's the largest civility group of its kind in the country. And uh, we're actively involved. Um, we have been since, since 2016. Uh, but as you can imagine, we, we are more divisive in our society than we've been in any time since 1850, since before the Civil War, according to, to Pew Research. And so we have a number of programs, the Red Blue Workshop, we have a skills workshop where we talk about how to listen and how to use I statements, where instead of telling people these are the facts, you can say, this is how I feel. And that's not something you can argue with, it's something you just need to accept and respect. So our group works on understanding and on uh, compassion and civility. We have debates, and our debates are a little bit different from your high school debates or your, your presidential debates. Uh, in that the, the object is not to win, it's not to defeat the other side, uh, but to add something to the conversation. I, I understand this is what you feel or this is what you know, and there's this. So our latest offering is entitled Depolarizing Conversations About Race. It's a skills workshop for difficult but necessary conversations between white Americans. Uh, and by that I mean that uh, it's not that it excludes people of color, uh, but the, the principal work uh, of uh, race uh, relations in America needs to be amongst white people. And um, well, in Braver Angels, we welcome African Americans, Hispanics, um, Latinos, people of color, uh, to help us to understand racism and to work towards making a more just society, um, the work primarily, at least in that course, uh, is one that, that whites need to be doing. And so I, I, wanna, I wanna thank uh, the, the community of Sandwich uh, for joining us today on Hear Me Out and talking about race and policing. Have a good day.